If you've been watching My Brother's Bomber, Frontline's three-part series on the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103, then you know that filmmaker Ken Dorenstein has a very personal connection to the story. His older brother, David, was on the plane when it exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland, killing all 259 people on board and 11 on the ground. What you might not know is that two weeks after his brother died, Ken got a letter in the mail. It was from David. I was home because I was on Christmas break and uh, news had come from Pan Am and the mourners had come to the house and we'd had a, a service for him. You know, he was very much dead. But then I go to get the mail and I open it up and there's one of his letters. I understood exactly why it arrived late, but there's a part of it that feeds that fiction that, okay, what are we gonna get letters every week now and you know clues about where he's hiding out? It was very easy to think he was still out there somewhere. It's been 27 years since David's death. In that time, Ken has been on an extraordinary journey, which has culminated in a quest to find and confront the men who carried out the bombing. I'm Michelle Meisner, and in this special edition of the Frontline Podcast, we hear from Ken about his relationship with David and what has motivated him to keep searching, even when it felt like the rest of the world had given up. I'm sending a letter home to my brother, so I told him I'd tell him what, what brunch was all about. So, I'm taping brunch. Don't let it inhibit you. Apart from the timing of that last letter Ken got from David, it actually wasn't surprising to see an envelope from him in the mail. They were the kind of brothers who you wrote know, to each lots other. Lots of interesting people. Ooh, there's someone with purple hair. Sometimes they even made tapes. This is a recording David sent to Ken of a Sunday brunch on his college campus. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Dave. I'm fine. And one year when David couldn't come home for Passover, Ken made a recording of their family's Seder dinner and sent it to him. At this point in the Seder, I've come upstairs to the playroom, my cove, and I'm monitoring the situation. So we had a house in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Upstairs of it was our domain. Our bedrooms were up there, and there was a place in between with knotty pine paneling that we called the playroom. When David went away to college, he became a voracious writer. He started keeping journals, spiral-bound notebooks that he filled with writing, he cut out articles and headlines from newspapers and would tape them to the pages with scotch tape. In his notebooks, he just let it fly. He was very free. Well, can I join you? I, you know, I think he lived a lot, trying on different hats, different personas. I'm going to be sitting down here at a table with people who I don't know, four people who I don't know, and this should be interesting. And he had a tremendous sort of sense of inner freedom. You know, uh, I think it was exciting for people um, to be around him. His work, you know, as he produced notebook after notebook and letters and papers and created this mountain of material that spilled out from his room and then went into the playroom and then at some point a box emerged. One day he took the box and wrote on it in thick black marker, the Dave Archive. 
and then he gave it to Ken. You take all this stuff, you know, everything here, and he would point to the box, you know, that his Dave archive thing. He's like, look, if you can make anything out of it, if you can finish these stories, if you can make sense of it all, like, I give you free reign. This is sort of your inheritance. And I think I didn't, I was interested in basketball and stand-up comedy and and so I don't think I took those invitations as much. Okay, I've spoken to him for so much, I really feel like I know him. You do know him. I do know him. You know him because he's just like me. Ken Dornstein. He's just like me. I felt that he, he wanted something from me. He wanted me to be, to grow up a little faster, to be his partner and friend and collaborator. And I felt a tremendous pressure, like, I don't know, maybe I'm not a great artist. Maybe I don't want to make great art. I was always kind of fending off his overtures. And so I think his last ditch idea was, well, all right, I wrote all this stuff, but if you want to take it on your own and make something of it, please do. And, you know, the, uh, the way it worked out was that he goes away and never comes back. And then I'm up there in this playroom with this box of papers. And the joke of me getting his literary inheritance became a reality. And suddenly, I was the keeper of every ambition that he had for these words. And what was I going to do with it? When you think for a long time that you've got something to do, but you don't know how to start doing it, I think Lockerbie became the name of that. Ladies and gentlemen, in a few moments' time, the train will be approaching Lockerbie. Lockerbie is your next station stop. Thank you. Eight years after the bombing, Ken grabbed his tape recorder and traveled to Lockerbie. He was now 27, two years older than David was when he died. Everything that was built into the idea that David had left these writings and what was I going to do with them and, and by the way, you know, how did I really feel about him being gone and what did the loss really mean to me? Um, those were questions I'd put off and there was always a sense that I had put them off and that I wasn't going to probably get away with that forever. Around this time in his life, Ken didn't speak very much about the bombing or about the loss of his brother. A lot of people that had only met him post Lockerbie didn't even know that he had lost a family member in the crash. I know I've got to do something about this. I know I can't avoid it forever. The idea of Lockerbie a lot crystallized around that. It's like, that's a real place. You can get a plane ticket, get a bus schedule, and you can go there. It's not an abstraction. Lockerbie? Single? Yeah. He had a tape recorder, I had a notebook. It was all very supercharged to me. It was just an average day for everybody on that bus, but to me it was kind of like I was coming in on the, with the first responders who were thinking that maybe they were survivors. And uh, the whole place was kind of haunted for me. Ken toured Lockerbie mostly by foot. He recorded the prices of homes. 75,000 pounds. The titles of VHSs available at the video store. Sense and Sensibility, Money Train, City Hall. Bridges in Madison County, just looking in the window. And at the public library. The librarian held what they called, you know, the Lockerbie Disaster Archive or something like that. 
they had all the reports from the first minutes of kind of breaking news on British television and I went through it and I recorded it. Look at there are a number of houses on fire. Is it uh, just a residential area, that part, please? Yes, I'm sure what present is. I was sitting there and they'd rig me up with like a little TV VCR combination and a recorder and I had headphones on and I just kind of sat there for large chunks of the day. I could see that people, were dozens of people wandering around trying to come to terms with what has happened. That feeling of, um, you know, the first seconds of the universe where people don't, you know, know exactly how everything was formed. You know, th those were those first seconds. I was kind of experiencing that. Next on Ken's list was the police station. He had heard that an officer there held a map showing where all the bodies had been found. And I kind of walked in off the street, and uh, I mean, it sounds, I guess, preposterous now, but it's kind of like, I'm, uh, you know, I'd like to talk to the people running the Lockerbie investigation. <laughs> uh, it was kind of like, uh, uh, wait right here. You know, and you don't know whether it's the wait right here of like, we're gonna come and take you away, or wait right here, we'd like to help you. There was no map. Nor were there items that Ken could search through to see if he recognized anything that might have belonged to David. He'd heard they might have had that, too. Finally, they agreed. The one thing to do for me, they're like, uh, we're going to, we'll tell you where your brother was found. One of the officers went downstairs. And when he emerged, Ken remembers that his face had changed. He flipped through and he probably saw disturbing things. I think he saw pictures that they had taken from the site, things that the police would have in a file uh, in a murder. And I think he looked at that stuff and then he came back and he looked at me and I think he understood why I was there. I think it was, I think it was a big deal to start actively doing something about this loss. But the actual trip to Lockerbie, I think once I had done it, it was over. And now I had been and now I was ready to do something else. Ken returned home and pulled out the box of notebooks. He read through them all. They were filled with David's thoughts on life, letters to others and to himself, and then stories, including one that he had submitted to a college writing professor. And there was some page that he taped the professor's critique of it. And the end of the critique was, it seems like the start of a story you're not yet ready to tell. I mean, I think it was kind of devastating to him, but that one line, you know, from that one professor, it rang more and more true the more I had read what he was struggling with in his life and what he was trying to figure out, that maybe it was the seed of a story he wasn't yet ready to tell. And then I felt committed to try to help him finish telling that story. Those were the beginnings of what would become a book. Ken used the Dave archives to write it. I remember looking through those notebooks, I and mean, I read all of them, I took notes on them, I made a real sort of study of it. But he also looked outside. He wrote the names of the people who were important to him at that moment in his life in the inside flap of his notebooks. And I had a sense that if he wanted to gather up the riches that he'd left behind, um, maybe they were in the Dave archives of his writing, but maybe they were in the stories that people kept. So I started calling people and they didn't forget. I remember this one guy, David took a cross country bus trip and uh, 
I found the guy who we sat next to on the Greyhound bus for a couple of days, 15 years earlier. And he acted like he'd, yeah, he'd been waiting for the call. He went through stuff and David used to pretend he, you know, and he was sure he still had an audio tape that he'd made together. And I was just always amazed at how vivid and how real, and, and there was a sense that, that there was a lot out there. As Ken was working on the book, two Libyan men were charged with involvement in the bombing. Ken attended the trial in the Netherlands. In an airplane hangar nearby, authorities had reconstructed part of the plane in order to determine the placement of the bomb. During a break in the trial, they offered family members a chance to go see it. Again, Ken recorded, but this time with a home video camera. You drive into this place, and it's like a, a graveyard of, of air disasters. So there's big planes and small planes, all in various kind of states. And this guy would lead these tours. So this is, this is it. Um, the bomb was centered on frame 700. And the scale of it is really, you know, we get on planes through these chutes, you know, and we don't ever fully, I think, take in how big they are. You know, the height of it is higher than you think, and the length of it is longer than you think, and the width of it is wider than you think. And you realize, like, oh my God. Part of his presentation is he, you tell him the, your, your relative's name, and he looks at a chart and he tells you, oh, he sat in this seat. And then he paces off. I'm standing at the nose cone of the plane and he's walking off to find row 40, which is where David's seat was. And then he kind of says, this, David would be over here. And he was really far away. And, you know, I just remember thinking of all the people in between. Something I thought about when I was writing that book was, what's the purpose of this reconstruction? I like the idea that they did a lot of work, the Scottish police and the investigators, but their purpose wasn't to gather everything. And they weren't trying to rebuild everything. They needed to gather just enough to tell a story about what had happened. And I felt like that's what I was trying to do with David's life. I, I didn't want to tell, I wasn't out to sort of be encyclopedic. I wanted to just reconstruct enough of his life and my relationship with him, just enough to feel like I had done justice to that story. And that's all I needed. That's all I needed from it. And then I, you know, it's been years since I did that book and I don't, I don't seek out those people anymore. I don't document that stuff anymore. You know, that, that's over. You know, and it was over. Ken's book was published in 2006. It ends with some details about the results of the trial and that one of the men, Abdul Basit al-Magrahi, was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. The last two pages are a letter to David saying goodbye, but signed, still your brother, Ken. Ken continued his own life, a career in documentary filmmaking, a house in Somerville, Massachusetts, two kids, and a wife. But in 2009, only eight and a half years after his conviction, McGrahi was released from prison. Today, the government of Scotland released Abdel Basset El-Megrahi. A Libyan intelligence agent is dying. 
prostate cancer. Scottish officials are granting him what they call a compassionate release. The victims are Ken watched the only person ever convicted for the attack that killed his brother walk out of prison. This enormous investigation and all the leads, and then the one bit of certainty that was established, I mean, and then that person's let go. And then you're sitting there and it's like, okay, it's 20 something years later, no one's ever admitted anything, and, and it's just over. That's the way it ends. The threat of meaninglessness of the whole thing, I found, um, I thought I could leave it, but that bothered me. Ken believed McGrath he was guilty, but that he didn't act alone. He connected with retired investigators from Scotland and the FBI, who had worked on the case. They gave him a list of names, people they had always wanted to track down, but never could. Ken decided to take the list and go to Libya himself. At the time, the country was in chaos. The Arab Spring uprising was well underway. Revolutionaries had just killed its longtime dictator, Muammar Gaddafi, and the country was unstable, to say the least. When I got there, it wasn't Gaddafi's Libya. And, and you know, I, I went to a place where the lid had been blown off of it, and it was, it was, uh, there were vestiges of that world. There were people picking through the rubble of that world. I guess once again, it was sort of, I was in the ruins of something, trying to find meaningful objects. Ken soon discovered that at least three people on his list were already dead. He tried to locate their families. He knocked on doors and was often turned away. Ken made three trips to Libya. He also traveled to a number of other countries, following leads, conducting interviews, holding out hope that someone out there would know more and that they would be able to lead him and the rest of the world to the Lockerbie bombers. I want to talk to somebody on the other side. Like if he could just tell me what he did that day, the day he connected the wires and sealed up that radio and handed it to somebody. And then what did he do the rest of the day? You know, and when it blew up and he saw it on TV, I've told you the whole story of what happened to me after that. And the whole odyssey of what I did or didn't say and going to Lockerbie and not going to Lockerbie and piecing together my brother's life. I've gone through all that over the last 25 years. What have you done? It doesn't matter what he says. I just, I need him to know that you didn't get away with it. And it did matter who the people were. And now I'm done with you. There is a part of me that feels that having a project that has some legitimacy in the world, maybe the secret agenda is to continue a kind of relationship with my brother. Otherwise, you get busy with your own life and you have kids and you're married and you do other things. There is um, a sense that always having this, this project out there to do and then you're finally doing it, that it, it's a way of, of demonstrating to him that, uh, that he still matters and that uh, I still am grateful to him for who he was to me growing up. Entering the dining room, we will commence seating. I will 
I will give you the Seder, as if you were really here. Listen closely. I think he would appreciate the, the seeds of it in a kind of audacious gesture, because that's, that's, those were his kind of gestures, and I feel if that was his accounting, if he was able to tally things up at any point, or he's looking down, or whatever vision of that, I think he would, I think he would appreciate it. My brother's name is Ken. Ken, how old is Ken? Fifteen. He just sent me a, he just sent me 180 minutes of Passover Seder in my no, house. He didn't. Yes, he did. Whether I can get anyone to care about the details, I think he would be knocked out by the gesture of it, and that's enough for me. My Brother's Bomber, Ken's three-part frontline report, is currently airing on PBS. You can also watch it on our website, pbs.org frontline.